Welcome to Books and Authors with Carrie Barber, the podcast where we talk to authors about their new books. I'm your host, Carrie Barber. This episode of the podcast was taped live in front of an audience at Book Culture, a bookstore on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. My guest is Eileen Miles, author of the recently re-released novel Chelsea Girls and a poetry collection called I Must Be Living Twice, both of which are published by HarperCollins. I started by asking Eileen whether she had reread Chelsea Girls, the novel she published in 1994, recently. There's, you know, there's that, there's that moment where you're proofing. You're sort of kind of pseudo-reading it, right? You're reading words where you're not reading, reading it. But I think before it went into this round of getting published, I had to reread it to think whether, to see whether it was actually a good idea to publish this book. And, and I was sort of shocked. I was like <laughs> comforted, alarmed, weirded out, and then... You know, like, and then there were so many parts that I forgot that I wrote, and you know, I didn't know which book those were in, and so it was like a whole, it was like a whole, you know, mosaic-y thing, you know. <laughs> and what made you want to re-release it now? Well, because I think it's a really good book, and people should be able to read it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean now, as opposed to 10 years ago, or 10 years hence, or? Well, it was like, as soon as, like, like Black Par- Sparrow ceased to exist in, like, 2006, and so there was, like, the first thing that happened was that all the books that they did went to another publisher who, that was you know. The, the, they published it the first time around? That um, was the original publisher? Black Sparrow was, yeah. yeah. But it's sort of like, they sort of, see, like, they didn't, they didn't fail. They actually, like, they, you know, like, Charles Bukowski was a millionaire, and he was the millionaire that built you know, he was the cash cow for Black Sparrow, so the owner of Black Sparrow was a millionaire. But I think they were pissed off by the, the Borders um, Barnes & Noble moment and what that was doing to independent publishers. Like, and I think the, the, cross, the crossing the line was when Borders referred to publishers as partners. And they said, and our partners. And he was like, I'm not your partner, I'm a publisher. And so he just thought, I'm, I'm out of this. And so sort of ceased. So all the books went for like a dollar to another publisher in Boston who then basically distributed the books until until they were gone and then you could have either gone with that publisher or let it go out of print and I just wanted it to be with a publisher I was excited about and Black Sparrow was so cool that I just thought I'll wait and so it just became like the piggyback book like every time a new book would come out we'd say and why don't we sell this too and it just kept not happening it kept not being the right publisher or the the right moment and so when it went to Echo Echo, they were just like, we were talking about this book and we were all sitting in the office and they were like, what else? And we were like, what about Chelsea Girls? And they were like, yeah. So it was, it was so easy. It was like kind of a major easy decision. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it was like yeah. sort of meant to be, it sounds right. like, yeah. And I know I've read that you have said that publishers try to fix, <laughs> have tried to fix, in quotes, your work before they publish it. Right, right. Um, and these these two are both, as you said, they're published by Echo, which is HarperCollins, uh-huh. which is pretty pretty mainstream. So, yeah, what do you what do you think? Can you tell us a little bit about how was the editing and publishing process with them? There was no there was no editing. It was just like I mean, it was basically because because Chelsea Girls is written, and so there yeah. was no moment in which I think was there anything at all. No, it was like they basically let me. I mean, there were a couple of names that were things that I just facts that I got wrong that I thought were worth fixing, but I didn't do any rewriting and they didn't touch it. There was some back and forth. There was an introduction that then, you know, I wrote and they decided they didn't like it. And and, and with this, I think actually it was was really big at first and I was kind of blown away that they were so inter- interested in doing because there is a whole thing about gender and you know, it's in the art world, but it's definitely in the publishing world, like female selecteds to please notice are smaller. And the idea is that women's books don't sell as much, so somehow if we make them small, they'll sell better. And so I thought it was so cool. It was like 400 pages or something. And they were like, yeah, you know? And then I think just maybe a week before it went to 
print. I think maybe the editor noticed or something because he was like, maybe it should be like 50 or 100 pages smaller. And so, um, and so I did that, you know. And actually, I have to say, and it wasn't, I've told people that and they were like, that's so horrible or wasn't, you know. But in fact, the thing that's so interesting about poetry is it's all selection, you know. And in a way, it could always be leaner and meaner. A poem can always have less words and a book can always be smaller. And it's kind of cool because you have to think a little harder about what you meant, you know. So it was actually, it was like kind of a great opportunity. You're a very prolific writer, and you write all kinds of stuff. <laughs> um, yet, I yeah, <laughs> no, I, I I wish I could have thought of a more elegant way to say yeah. that besides stuff. But um, despite that, I discovered you on Twitter and Instagram, <laughs> oh, great. and I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about because you've been doing this for a long time, and social media is pretty new. What yeah. can you just talk a little bit about how you use it? How do you see it? Does it nourish your work at all? How do you kind of interact with social media? Well, I mean, I guess it nourishes my work in that it brought you to my mm, work. You know, yeah. I mean, I think that's the main thing is that, it, it, you know, on that level that attracts readers. But I think, and I don't think it nourishes my work per se because I write a lot, you know. And I think part of it is, though, if you're a writer that writes a lot, you have this extra energy. And it's, in a way, you shouldn't, it doesn't mean you shouldn't write more shitty books. I think it's just like it, it, you should find more things to do with language, you know. And I think... There are, I mean, like things like this, this is a thing to do with language, talking publicly and, um, you know, teaching is a thing to do with language and all the different, you know, like writing, doing journalism, writing about other people's work. Um, there's so many, but it's basically, I think part of, you know, writing is this problem of an extraness, like you often have too much feeling and too much energy and, um, and more, I mean, it's sort of like, it's like frozen thoughts in a way. It's sort of like, why these thoughts and not those thoughts? And so I think the thing that's so wonderful about social media, and also this, you know, like this, like, like when I started to write poetry, um, like I, I, I read before I, I published, and part of that being it's harder to get published than it is to stand up at an open mic, you know? And so it's just like your first, the fir I always felt like the first level of publication is reading publicly, and so you'd read at open mics, and then they'd say you, and then you'd get like a feature reading, and on and on, and a, and a career occurs. But it's sort of like, but there's an immediacy that poetry is about. Like, and it used to be you'd get, you'd read a new poem, you'd write a new poem, and you'd call your friend up and say, "Can I read you my poem?" And weirdly, people don't do that as much on cell phones. There was something about the landline. I guess you wrote it in the apartment, and then you get on the phone and you write and you read the poem. And it's very kind of, you know. So I think the thing that's interesting about tweeting and, and Instagram, etc., is that you just have that feeling, you know. And it's like my friend, you know. But it's sort of like, and you know, is my, you know. My, my friend Nicole J. George, who lives in Portland, and it's sort of like, I show her my dog, she shows me her dog, you know, we do this kind of like thing, it's sort of like, so the community just kind of expands and is like more immediately present to each other. So I think it's, it's a real kind of ecstasy of language for writers, you know, and really for poets, because I think we do, we operate from lines, and the line of the tweet, and the line of, you know, these forms are perfect for us. Yeah, and the economy of, that Twitter requires is, is very, akin to poetry, it I think. It forces you into a form, and I think we thrive in forms. And I think writers, you know, even like art writing, it's sort of like you write the 400-word review, and then you write the 1,000-word column, and then you write the 2,000-word. It's sort of like you really, you're in this economy all your writing life of being forced into numbers, you know? And mm. so it's just like it's a sweet little one, mm. you know? Speaking of uh, that, what can you talk a bit about poetry versus fiction and what what do you feel you can do in one that you can't do in another since you're releasing these these two books at the same time yeah um well one I mean, one fiction is social i think it's sort of like you can kind of you can kind of release the world of the poem 
in the novel. I mean, like my characters are always. I mean, like I love I love um, Roberto Bolano because um, because I feel like we're doing we're doing the same thing and we're the same generation. You know, it's sort of like the poet is a character. You know, and the par- poet is a character whose biography is sort of unknown in the same way that the woman is a character whose biography is unknown, and the queer is you know, and on and on. You know, the person of color. It's so like these you know, like there's, there's, we we supposedly know certain lives. You know, and then there's so many other lives that we don't know. You know, the child's life. You know, so it's it's sort of like writing fiction about being a poet or just writing fiction as a poet means. That that you just download the whole room and you download the whole society and, and you show how the character moves through the world, you know? And that's like, that's, that's invaluable and I think it makes, the, it makes the poet safe and makes the poetry stronger and part of my politics is distributing this art form, you know, that, that has given me so much. Mm. How do you get a poem? Does, it come to, does a sound come to you or does an image come to you or how? How does it go for you? Well, it's a little bit like being in high school when somebody would say something funny and everybody would laugh. You know, it's sort of like we all know when somebody comes out with a good line, you know, in the same way that the culture is like metonymic, right? There's just like lines that just words that rip through the culture at certain periods of time. And that's poetry. You know, it's just like lines that like vibrate. You know, and so it's sort of like in, I, I would feel that in my life. And sometimes it has to do with the mood that preceded the line. You're just, you're feeling that and you don't know what that is and then a line comes to you and you're like huh you know and you can feel it's almost like petting an animal in the dark and you can kind of feel the size of the animal somehow you know and it's like the poem kind of dictates its own size Mm. you know so you just kind of open yourself to it was it always that way did you always know what size the dog was or is that something that's come with experience it's yeah you get i mean it's sort of like when you teach writing and people are like how do you know you know and it's like you just it's like anything else it's like learning how to you know like walk and eat and read and have sex and read it's just like i said read twice um it's just it's sort of like you just you know you just get better at it you know you just get less scared you get and you decide this is mine and the more you decide this is mine, the more you feel comfortable taking risks and de- determining how it works. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, I just wonder if you could say a bit about the proliferation of MFA programs. Do you feel like, um, how, how do you think those are for, tr- for training poets? Well, they're as good as any place else. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's sort of like, I think they, they, it's economic. It's sort of like they kind of throw a circus tent over a period of time. And, and fund the writer for that period, and they get into this hothouse experience of like, okay, I'm going to write for these two years. You know, I mean, it's a little hard because there's an economic expectation that perhaps what you create will then support for you for the rest of your life or get you a teaching job or sell a book and stuff. And I think that's hard because, I mean, like, I am such an example. It's sort of like my plan was always to make a living from my writing, and like, say, 20 years into it, I made my living approximately as a writer, and now 20 years further into it, I really make my living as a writer, you know, and it's like, there's just, it's such a crapshoot, and, and not about whether you're good or not, but when, when you'll get this acknowledgement from the culture that, mm-hmm. that you'll be okay, and I think the thing that's tricky about MFAs is they ask people to invest, in many cases, a lot of money in their own futures without any guarantee that it will be okay immediately, so you might be saddled with a $100,000 debt, you know, it was just like, you know, Columbia, you know, like I've taught at Columbia, and I just, it's like you get, you pay $100,000 for an MFA in poetry. I was like, what, you know, what the fuck I have to say, you know, it's just like, <laughs> and yet, you know, it's like, may work out, you know, might work out, you know, you get, might get a whiting the first year and a Guggenheim the next, and then you're just out of debt, you know, but it's like, that's rare, Yeah. you know, 
And so, so, but on the other hand, you know, like on the hand, it, it employs many of us, you know, both as people who teach there, people who come there to read, you know, and it just, and it commodifies writing in a way that's not entirely bad. I mean, I just feel like an MFA is no worse than a bookstore as a place for spawning poets, mm. you know, and it used to, everybody used to work at the Strand, you know, and, and, you know, just like, but, but obviously we're in such a different situation with rent and the whole large, I mean, like, considering that we supported the banks rather than the people, you know, we've just made it hard for all the people, you know, and that's just every, every single bad decision our politicians and the, gov you know, the, the corporate government makes for us makes it harder and harder for writers to feel the freedom. But I mean, I think freedom is still an issue, it's, it's still a mental issue, like, I feel like a poet's studio is the inside of her head, you know, and it's like, everybody has to struggle to make that place free, you have to meditate, you have to run, you have to, you know, tell your friends you can't go out and, you know, make decisions that, that make space, you know, so that you actually can sit down and write. And then even then, you have to sit down and write rather than thinking, I think I'll watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, right, yeah. yeah. Are you teaching these days? I'm not this, at the second. I mean, in, um, I think supposedly I'm teaching at NYU in the spring. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and are, were there teachers that, I know, like, you worked for Jimmy Schuyler, right, and yeah. and and uh, spent time with Ashbery and O'Hara and all those guys. I, I not O'Hara. Not O'Hara. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Uh, I get credit for the 60s, but I was, <laughs> I was a teenager. <laughs> no. um, were there teachers, th them or others, who were very influential on you. I wonder if you can just talk a bit about how how were you taught and how did you come up and how did you learn? You know, not, I mean, like, not well growing up. I mean, you know, it's like I went to Catholic high schools that were sort of, um, you know, just not um, particularly focused on discourse, you know. We, we would have big, fat English and American anthologies of literature that didn't, I mean, like, that as new as it got was like Dylan Thomas and... Uh, um, Wordsworth, I guess, and Ted Hughes, which I just re-realized how much I actually don't hate. I mean, I hate Ted, what Ted Hughes probably did as a husband, but I don't hate him as a poet. But, but I mean, basically, we just didn't, we, we just had crummy, we had like, you know, Catholic schools where we had, there was maybe one nun who was kind of, a few people who were serious about poetry, but still, we didn't talk. We never had, we very, very, once in a while, they would risk a conversation in class. But mostly, mostly, we, we, we actually, though weirdly, we had a guy who was the assistant football coach in, when I was a junior in high school, and that's the year we had this big anthology that I remember. And he would basically call, I mean, I, I, he would call the boys up to his desk and they would talk about girls' tits, literally, you could hear it. And, and the rest of us were to open the book and read chapter 36 and answer the questions at the end of the chapter. And so it was just like, I remember dying to get to these poems that I, like Dylan Thomas was who I loved in high school, and I was like dying to get to this, you know? And I never got to it, so I just reread re the same poems over and over again, and you know, we'd go wander by the pond and write nature poems, you know, and stuff. But college was different. I had, you know, I had great professors. I had a great, you know, I, I, Inferno starts with the English professor who just was incredible, and I had, you know, it was like, college was like a revelation for me because I had never gone to places where we, we didn't talk. You know, we didn't talk in high school, you know? And so suddenly we were talking, and it was just like, I realized there were people who made their living talking. And I was like, I want to be one of those people, you know? And it was so, you know, so it was like everything about it, you know, like I had a professor who, rather than, because this is the day of the manual typewriter, so it was like onion skin paper and corrections and 
staying up all night trying, I mean, you would type a term paper and it would look so bad and it would just like, and then you were never going to retype it, so it just was this crazy mess would go, you know. Um, but I had this professor who was like, let's keep notebooks. And then we would just like write a note, an entry in our notebook about every book that we read. And then we would hand in our notebook, and, and then he would write. And it was just like, that was my first mm. real, I remember this guy writing, I love your mind. And I was like, oh my God, you know? It's like, you know? And so, so I, college was, was the, the beginning for me. It was just like, just the, the beginning of my intellectual life, which was, you know, I remember one, a poet saying once in public that for him as a child, reading was the place where he discovered that other people were thinking, you know? And I've just always thought that's such a beautiful thought, you know? And it was that. So the, there was the library and then there was college. That was sort of my narrative. So just to change topics a little bit, I feel like your work is getting much more mainstream attention these days. Do you agree? And and if so, what do you attribute it to? Well, I mean, mainstream only means one thing, which is this publisher. You know, it's sort of like you just get a lot of bang for your buck when a bigger corporate publisher publishes your work. Mm. It's sort of like, and I kind of knew that. And, and so I, I, when I, when it came to doing a selected poems, I kind of knew that that was not the thing that had to happen. So I feel... I feel lucky that it did happen mm. because I just am just getting a different kind of attention. And it's like, you know, it's just so crazy because it's like attention. So many writers deserve attention, you know, and it's like, how does that work, you know? And so, I mean, so, so mainstream, mainstr I remember when Allen Ginsberg's um, collected poems came out in the 80s. I mean, he was mega famous already, but when it came out, that was when the word mainstream got invented. I remember Newsweek wrote this piece about mainstreaming Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> You know, and it was like, what was he like narrow before? You know, we're gonna like make him wide, you know. But but it was this, it was it was this, you know. Probably that might have been the that was probably the first time Newsweek wrote about Allen Ginsberg, and that's crazy, you know. After 30 years of being America's most famous poet, I don't even. I think I've already answered. Yeah, yeah, and and I also I feel like you're you're in pop culture too because I. I understand there's uh, are you um is there a character in the show transgender that's based on you or transparent or transparent yeah, Sorry. <laughs> yeah Sorry. I mean, which is about a transgender the next, character the next season i'm a, I'm a character oh really yeah. you yourself no i'm a fr i'm a friend of the character oh <laughs> yeah. do you yeah. how did you how did that happen well there's a small world of people yeah. that know each other right yeah. I think that's pretty much how it works so i think people were writing a character and then people who were writing it thought that seems like Eileen Miles and then so then so then they started to research me and then more of me came in and then they actually started asking me if her clothes look okay and I was like no you know so then I met you know then I met the person that was playing me and then they decided it would be funny if there was somebody who actually was her friend who was me who was someplace when she read my poem and I'd be so I just yeah it's kind of amazing so what do you think about that as I mean as somebody who thinks a lot and, and writes a lot about gender roles, how, how do you feel about, you know, there's this kind of mainstream TV show about, about you know, the transgender people, I feel like, are coming more into the mainstream. I'm sorry to keep using that word. I can't think of another one. But I wonder just if you can comment on it as somebody who is interested in gender and gender roles. Well, these these... Gender is just never stable, you know, and it's sort of like, and that's just been true for a long time, you know. But I think, I think, increasingly, people are making these choices, and and technologically, you know, like the the, you know, it's sort of like it's it's more possible. 
people are have more access to hormones and it's just like and it's talked about more and thought about more and written about more and it's just like and it's sort of like it's just we're there you know I just think increasingly like gender roles just are are just kind of you know um, obstructive to Mm. The, the identities that we all live and feel through and write through and, and you know, it's just, you know, and so I think it's, it's you know, of course, it's sort of like, it's always like a breakthrough, like TV series, but it's, it's, it's acknowledging a breakthrough culture that is just you know, all the time, you know, like kind of discovering itself and articulating different and writing new books. And I mean, you know, like Jan Mar- Morris's book, Conundrum, was published what, 30 years ago? I mean, like, and maybe that wasn't the first book about being transgender, you know, but it was an amazing book because it was written by a British travel writer who mm. became female, you know, um, and, and talked about it as a journey, you know, and talked about it as a mythic process, you mm. know, and, and so it just like, it, it just, it's something that's being redefined by all of us. And we are going to leave it there. Again, that was Eileen Miles at a live event at Book Culture on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review of it on iTunes. It helps a lot. And speaking of iTunes, I want to give a shout out to another bookish podcast that you can find there. The Los Angeles Review of Books Radio Hour is a weekly variety show featuring author interviews, readings, and discussions about all things literary. It's hosted by Los Angeles Review of Books Editor-in-Chief Tom Lutz, Fiction Editor Laurie Weiner, and author Seth Greenland. Check it out. I'm your host, Carrie Barber. Thanks for listening to Books and Authors. Mm-hmm.